Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to the Most High God, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose tongue, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 57, which along with Psalms 56 and 58 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, March the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're uh, we're in the book of Jeremiah, which means it must be Lent if we're in Jeremiah, because that's about the only time of year we ever read um, his prophecy, because it's to convict us of sin. So we're there in Jeremiah 1, verses 11 to 19. The gospel is John 4, verses 27 to 42, and the epistle is the... Um, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the first 15 verses of chapter 1. So let's get started with Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah, remember, uh, in, on the, in the previous day, had been called. So we had the call of Jeremiah, and, and his call was to uh, a ministry to, to the uh, Israelites, to the, to the southern kingdom of Judah. But he also said that he was uh, given a prophecy at, over the nations, and what does that mean? Well, I mean, at some level, he's prophesying to the nations today because we read him <laughs> and we would be part of the nations. But at the time, he also prophesied, as we're going to see today, to the nations. He's going to prophesy that these northern kingdoms, not the northern kingdom of Israel, but the northern kingdoms, the, the kingdoms north of Jerusalem, are going to come down. And so we've, we've got that. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And it said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. It's an enigmatic kind of of a statement for people like us because we don't get the symbolism of that. The the almond branch, sort of almonds have two functions. One is an almond tree was also considered to be the tree of life in Judaism. That was the way they looked at that particular tree. But the other side of it is is the, that the, the um, candelabra in the, um, in the Holy of Holies and the menorah are intended to look like almond trees. And so there's, there's this watching over it because it means the old word for almond in Aramaic, for instance, is uh, luz, which means light. So the, he's watching over it over my word to perform it. In other words, night and day. It's never dark to me. It's always there. I'm watching over my word to perform it. And that has to do with this almond branch, this tree of life, this light. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and around and against all the cities of Judah. So it's more than just Babylon that's going to come. And it's exactly what we see is is that multiple 
tribes, multiple countries from the north come down and come against Jerusalem and set themselves up as siege against it. And so this is the Lord promising in advance through Jeremiah that this is exactly what's going to happen. He's announcing the, the judgment before he announces why <laughs> these, they're being judged. And so he says, I'll declare my judgments against them for their, all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship to the works of their own hands. So there's the complaint God makes against his people, that they have forsaken his covenant, that they have gone after other gods. They have made images in spite of the fact that the first several commandments all prohibit all the things that they're doing now. So they have thrown him over, the one who is their salvation, the one who has rescued them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and and now this long time afterwards, and not for the first time, they have completely abandoned his worship and gone after other gods. You know, this all started, well, it started way back, but but within the kingdom periods, it started with Solomon, and then it went, it, it divided itself into two kingdoms, and then both continued to go after other gods. And you can see that in, you know, in America, what we see is for a long, long period of time, there was the Christian religion was certainly had hegemony within the United States. And, and then over the last whatever period of time, we've, we've lost that hegemony and we've lost our place in the world. And there's two reasons for that. One of it's immigration and uh, the, the melting pot that is America. But the other side of it is, is that the church has lost its verve and its nerve. It lost its, its raison d'etre um, because it, it, it saw that more as the place that you have in society rather than... Um, embracing sort of an outsider's view of the world and and we've lost our own way along the way i'm hopeful that in the next bit we're just going to be cleansed and purified and we're going to see a new revival within the church that's my hope and my prayer but you he says jeremiah dress yourself for work arise and say to them everything that i command you in other words stand up be a man let's go do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. In other words, don't go before them, before the people, and cower before them. No, if you do that, then I'll give you reason to cower before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So Jeremiah knows, as does every single prophet in the Old Testament, essentially gets a word that, go, I'm sending you to this people, they will not hear you, and they will fight against you. It's not going to be an easy life. It's not going to be one where you go and they immediately repent of their sins and turn back to the Lord. And so he said, I make you such a thing that you will be able to withstand the attacks that will come against you. I'm going to protect you and deliver you, Jeremiah. And it's similar to, you know, Jesus tells the stories of um, the prophets who have come before and, and he'll, he'll tell the story of the man who planted a vineyard and then went away. And then um, he had everything ready, leased it out to tenants, and then began, once it was time for the harvest, to come get his share of the harvest. And they, they beat and stoned the messengers until ultimately they rejected the son. And so Jeremiah is in that line of those who have been rejected. 
And so here, remember, uh, on Saturday where we were was Jesus had gone, uh, was coming back from Jerusalem after the first Passover that we see in, in John's Gospel. He comes back. He's going back to the Galilee. And it says that he had to pass through Samaria, but he didn't have to. Most Jews would have avoided doing that, but Jesus did. And that's where he meets the woman at the well. So she has uh, just then, after Jesus had spoken all these things to her, um, the, the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman because that's an unusual thing. That That's not normal for, for women that you don't know to strike up conversations with strange men. So no one said, what do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They didn't know what to do or what to say. And so the woman left her water jar, the whole reason she had even come there. She leaves the water jar behind and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And remember, the Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible. They only have the Torah, the books of Moses. They don't have any of the kings. They don't have any of the prophets. None of that stuff matters to them because they believe that that Israel has gone off the rails and lost their way. They believe themselves to be the true Israel of God. And they have been very faithful to those five books. So they've been faithful all this time, while Jerusalem and, and the Jews have gone after other gods. A great deal of pride in Samaritans, and not wrongly. But Jesus has told her, you believe you know not what, and salvation comes from the Jews. And so when she goes and says, can this be the Christ, she's talking about this one that Moses had prophesied that would be a prophet like him, and when he came, they were to listen to him. So these people are looking for a prophet, not who necessarily does things and gives signs, but who speaks in certain ways and, and says things in the same way that Moses does. Now, she has done exactly what the first disciples did. Remember that, that they went and found their brothers. They went and found others and said, come see what we have seen. We believe this is the Christ. And so she has, she's acted exactly like them. And, and what is it that, that he has done? He has prophesied. Because she had said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. When he said, You don't have a husband now. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And so she has heard a prophetic thing about her own life, and that is her testimony. Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. And it, it sounds a good bit like Nathaniel's reaction when Jesus says, I knew you before I saw you under the fig tree when Philip came to get you. And and that's the same basic thing that's happened here. And so she has come to a conclusion based on what he told her, not just his prophetic word, but also his claim to be the Christ. So she comes and she she's got to, she can't say, I have met the Christ. No, she has to say it in such a way that they're intrigued and they want to come out and see something for themselves. They went out of the town and were coming to him. And so you see, you can see them out on this uh, plain by, by this well that Jacob had given them so many uh, millennia ago. And, and so you can see this crowd of people, and what you can imagine is these people in these white garments coming out to see Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? I mean, they're confused, but he's not talking about literal food. He's talking about spiritual food, and this is more important and provides more sustenance to Jesus than the actual food that they're talking about. 
And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, Yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And I believe at this moment what he's actually doing is he's pointing to the reality of these Samaritans coming out. They see the harvest coming to them. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Jesus has sown into this woman, and now they're going to be there to reap the harvest. And then what we see then after the stoning of Stephen is Philip, not the, the disciple Philip, but the deacon Philip. The first place he goes when the prosecution or persecution breaks out is he goes to Samaria. And I believe that this is the town that he went to. Jesus had already done the evangelism. They had already come to believe certain things about him. And so now they got to go back. He gets to go back and tell the rest of the story. And when he does, the Spirit falls on these people and they believe. So <clears throat> Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And he tells that. The, the parable that he tells about the ten talents, the five talents, and the one talent, what is it that he says to the ten and the five, the people that he gave the ten and the five to, whenever they returned to him, double what he had had, what he had given them, I mean, and what is it that he says to them? Enter into the joy of your master. And here he says, you enter into the labor of those who have sown before you. And those who have sown before them include all the way back to Moses, and then also here now, it's also Jesus. So, so the sowing happened over a long, long period of time. As many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. It's just really unusual to say, hey, let's, let's have a bunch of Jews come stay with us because they hated him. And many more believed because of his word. Not because of the signs that he did, but because of what he said when he was with them. Because remember, they're looking for a prophet. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, the, the only people who have said such things prior to this are the disciples that we've met along the way. Nicodemus was... Um, more guarded, I guess, is what I would say in, in his estimation of who Jesus was. We know you're a teacher come from God. So he, he recognizes him in that way. But these Samaritans have, have agreed that Jesus is the Savior of the world here. In the epistle, Paul's writing to the church at Rome, a church that he has not yet visited, and he's only going to go there in chains uh, after the trials. And so here we get the beginning of the uh, book of Romans, the, the letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the prophets declared him, in advance, they told us who this would be. They, they, they narrowed the field down to a, to a son of David, just one who is descended from David. But then the resurrection, he says, proved everything we needed to know. So if there was any doubt remaining that Jesus was the Christ, the resurrection, Paul says, the, the power of the, of the resurrection was, resolves those questions. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking to them as though he were an ambassador of Christ, because what he does is grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and from Jesus Christ. So he's speaking for them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, it's truly exciting to see there in Rome, at the center of the, the the known universe, the center of the empire, it's a wonderful thing to know there are Christians there. In that place. He's God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And certainly it's going to be somehow by God's will, because somehow is going to be as a prisoner, but he's there in order that he can proclaim the gospel to the kings and the governors and then ultimately to the emperor. So God puts him in these places, but he does so in chains. And Paul is not constrained by his captivity. He continues to do exactly what he would do if he were a free man. He proclaims the gospel to various and sundry and all to whom he uh, comes into contact. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. In other words, I I believe that I have something to offer you. Because God's put it in my heart to come to you, and so I believe because of that, that I have something actually to say, to give you, to build you up. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't expect just to give you something I expect to receive from you as well. I expect to be encouraged as I come to encourage you. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul has an expectation that wherever he goes, as long as he preaches the gospel faithfully, then there will be actually a harvest in that place. Paul has confidence in the message, and he has confidence in the Lord to do exactly what he said he would do, which is to be with us even to the end of the age. But it's also, he has the same confidence that God had given to Jeremiah in saying, I will be there to deliver you. I will be with you in all that you do. Paul says and believes that as long as I'm faithful to sow the word, there will be a harvest. Because that's the way God is, and and that he loves the world in order that he gave his son, in order that the world through him might be saved. And Paul says, I want to see that happen, and so I'm going to continue to preach the gospel in order that I can see God at work and confirm that he's working through his word and the proclamation of his son. He said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. The Greeks and the barbarians would stand for the civilized world, the cultured world of Greece and Rome versus those who are outside of that. So he's not, it's not a value distinction. He's, he's making a distinction between two groups of people, these cultured people and these uncultured people. 
but and to the wise and to the foolish. Those things are similar kinds of statements that he's making there. It's a parallelism. He says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's writing to people who know the gospel and who have received the gospel in faith, and yet he believes there's still something he can give them, but that he could also, by preaching the gospel, see a harvest in that place. We need to have that confidence that Paul has here, the confidence that God was trying to drum into Jeremiah that Jeremiah ends up having, but also the confidence of this woman and the ability to say, come meet a man who changed my life.